0: Now, put on your winter coat and some thermal underwear because we're heading out to the cold rocky shores of Alaska. Cuz for Lynn Sculler, there was nothing better than being alone in the wilderness. Step judgment. When I was a growing up up in Anchorage, you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s, I had heard of blue bears and you'd hear the stories about them, you know, like they were these uh, bears that lived up on the glaciers and never came down, and that's why they were this pale gray blue color and other people would say how they knew of somebody who knew somebody who uh, shot one, but I certainly never never saw one and didn't know anybody who, who had seen one. It uh, always seemed so elusive and special, it just uh, was below the radar all the time. I got into the guiding business because shortly after I moved down to southeast Alaska here, um, through a strange sequence of events, I actually wound up working for a law firm. And I've always played a game with myself where I asked myself what I would do if a doctor told me I only had two years to live. I decided, sitting there at my desk, you know, with a screen in front of me and a suit and tie on, that I would want to spend all of that time outdoors in wild places on my own, answering to nothing social or cultural or none of those expectations of how you should look or be or act. I went out and got a master mariners license uh, from the United States Coast Guard and built a boat to do this with and uh, started a more or less a water charter freight service here in southeast Alaska. I would work 115, 125 days straight, exhaust myself. Winter would come, I'd just kind of hunker down and get through it however best I could and then uh, prepare for the next season. It uh, it suited me. I didn't have the latitude, I didn't have uh, the mental playroom to let some very disturbing things from my past that had been eating at me for a long time keep running around and around in my head. When I was 21 years old, a woman that I was very attached to uh, disappeared. You know, of course, after we had searched all the woods around her cabin and done everything we could do to figure out where she went and why she left her dogs alone and why there was food rotting in the refrigerator and what could have happened, it turned out that she had been abducted and uh, was murdered. Never knowing exactly who was involved, That cast a very long shadow over everything else. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't want to be close. I was not sure that the general cut of humanity was desirable company. I was 36 when I started working on getting the boat together and preferred to be alone. One day the phone rang, and it was uh, Micha Hoshino, a Japanese fellow, I could tell from his accent, and it turned out he was one of the best wildlife photographers in the world, if maybe even the best, and had a huge rock star following in Japan. He wanted to hire me to take a film crew out for six weeks, and my initial reaction was no way. The thought of having four people in an 8x10 area for weeks on end sounded more like uh, the best analogy was a prison cell. But there was something in his approach that made me consider it. He just wanted to go out in the woods or on the water and see the most beautiful things he could see and try to take good photos of it. So I I took the job. Within uh, a couple of hours of having him on the boat, getting ready and everything, I realized that I liked him, which was kind of unusual, you know, to right away just like somebody. he was such a calm presence that you didn't feel like you had to be on your guard at all. I wasn't used to asking anybody for anything. And so I very reluctantly asked him if he would teach me something about photography. And he immediately agreed. I had uh, taken Michio way up on a hillside where there's a stand of interstadial stumps and he was setting up, taking some photos. and, And he suddenly... Uh, he just stepped aside and motioned at his camera that he had on a tripod there and pointed down at a just a stump and some rocks. And I, I put my eye up to the viewfinder. There was this beautiful composition. A lot of smooth stones of different colors nestled into the curve of a root. It was like the root and these stones that were millions of years old had this intimacy between them. As if I was looking at a Madonna or a photo of a mother holding a baby. How did he see that in that pile of rubble that I was standing on? And that was fascinating to me. It was kind of an eye-opener about what photography could be like. He told me once that every photo should tell a story. And after he explained that to me, I started recognizing that in his work. He uh, asked me one day if I thought we could find a blue bear. And I said, not a chance. Going looking for a blue bear is going to be like looking for a yeti or, you know, a snow leopard. But he kept bringing it up. He kept asking me how we could find a blue bear. I started digging into it and gathering up all the information. And and we started uh, making trips to some of these areas where there seemed like there might be a chance. He understood that bears can be very dangerous but he also appreciated living with bears. He was adopted into the bear clan of the Clinkett Indians. One of our trips together, we had been up into a, a fjord region where I'd heard a rumor of a blue bear and spent several days without any success, no sign of it. One of those days where it's just so calm, you could, you know, see seagulls landing on the water half a mile away and and no wind at all. And we decided to make a run and see if we could find some humpback whales. This was very late in the autumn. This weather front hit us, went from blowing maybe 5 knots to 20 to 40 to 50. And then I don't know how hard it was blowing. It was just blowing like hell. And the seas built up almost faster than I can describe it like big gray animals coming at us out of the dark. And my boat, the Wilderness Swift, is only 31 feet long. It was out of control. I did not think we were gonna make it. Michio uh, asked me how it looked. I lied, I said, we'll be okay. The Swift is a good boat, we'll make it. And so he said, okay, he laid down. I kept steering the boat and praying and was dry mouth with fear. And I looked back and Michio was sleeping. He was was asleep. And the boat was just being thrown helter-skelter all over the place. Somehow or other, we managed to make it and tuck into a little hole I knew about up there and get into shelter. Micho got up and looked around and said, ''Oh, okay.'' He immediately started making dinner, you know? (laughs) I was just clammy with sweat and stank from fear and and was just so amazed to still be alive. And when I asked him uh, if he wasn't afraid... He said, uh, well, you said we'd be all right. And it just struck me how how he believed me. He trusted me to be right. I'm glad I didn't make a liar out of myself. I found myself putting in extra effort to try to hunt down a, an elusive blue bear, talking to biologists, calling up other naturalists and guides, digging through the records in the library going through old magazines and just trying to parse up any little reference to the Blue Bear. It was intense. You know, my, my intention was to do the very best I could for Michio. It got to where everything else uh, was just filling in the, the time between our, our trips. We would have the kind of conversations I'd never had with anybody before. We were at anchor, you know, in a little little cove, and we were in the cabin of the boat. We had coffee after dinner, you know, so fresh smell of coffee and sitting there in the light of a twelve volt white bulb and the windows are open and outside there's there's the darkness, you know, and it's it's quiet and it, there's a sense of a, a really big world out there waiting, you know. And that's that was the that was the first time in our conversations, you know, when when we were talking about all his successes and You know, he had a show at the Carnegie Museum. He had a show in in Tokyo that 10,000 people attended the opening day. They were doing documentaries of him. His books were selling very well. And then just out of the blue, he said, I would trade all of this to have a family. And I realized that he was lonely. And that really hit me. Having those kind of conversations at night became one of the things that I look forward to the most. and gradually realizing that what I really enjoyed here was this uh, open, intimate connection about what we really thought and felt. Sometimes he would ask my advice, you know, on uh, on how to get what he wanted, which was, I was the last person you ought to be asking uh, how you'd go about getting married, and it kind of snuck up on me that all of a sudden I had this close, good friend. And then one day... He called me up, and I could tell immediately that he was just vibrating with excitement. Micho had made a trip back to Japan, and I asked him what was going on, and he said, I met her. Who? What? Tell me about it. He said, her name is Naoko. We're going to get married pretty soon. I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to admit that my reaction was, oh, no. Instead of being happy for him, I thought I was afraid it was going to mean the end of our, our trips, that he was going to disappear. You know, he was going to fade out of my life. And then that passed pretty quickly. His uh, excitement was contagious. And uh, a year or so later, he got married and uh, had a son. But then he came came to Juneau with his family, and uh, he still had hopes for finding the blueberry. I was kind of elated that it wasn't going to change that much, and it looked like we were definitely going to be making another trip. It was some months later that uh, I called Michio up. I was all very excited and uh, said, I know where there's a Blue Bear. We can go to this place. Only Michio couldn't go when I thought we needed to go. We put it on hold, and I had another charter. After being out for a week or ten days with those that crew, I pulled into a little village named Cake and went to a payphone to call in and get all my messages at home. There were probably half a dozen or more messages from people calling to tell me that Micho was dead. Micho was working, doing his photography with this film crew in the Kamchatka Brown Bear Preserve. In the middle of the night, this bear who had been hanging around too close to camp and breaking into things, took Micho out of his tent and uh, killed him. I remember standing in that little restaurant, that cafe, on the payphone, and this incredible void opened up. I literally don't remember the rest of the day, You know, just get back out on the water, find wildlife for these photographers, you know, set up, wait for the light, pay attention to the weather. But I wasn't present somehow. You know, it's like I was just watching myself do this stuff, not having any idea what the future might be, or if there was a future, if it was worth thinking about. Just loss. The following spring, I'd lined up trips for the spring, and, uh was with a couple of photographers that I wasn't getting along with. You know, looking back, I probably was not in the best frame of mind. We were anchored off in uh, a fairly remote area. There was no wind, but there was the sound of water, you know, the sea moving, all the thousands of tiny little bubbles and pops and clicks and all you hear from different bivalves being exposed. kind of thing where at first it, it seemed silent and quiet and still, but when you really start listening, there's just kind of a constant murmuration of of movement in life. A bear walked out onto the beach, got to looking, and there was something different about it. I put the skiff in the water and got a little closer, and it was this husky, well-furred, heavily muscled animal with this kind of smoky gray coat that blended into the all of the glacial erratic stones and the cobbles and things. It looked like a dark gray stone. Sure enough, it was a blue bear. I broke every rule I had about approaching wildlife. I've always made it a point to try to not bother the animals, not intervene, but I just kept drifting closer and closer and closer, and the skiff is in a couple of inches of water I might have even stepped out of the skiff and started walking towards it if it hadn't just suddenly spun around and was looking at me and just picked up my camera that Micho had talked me into getting and took one shot. And then it just turned and ran off into the woods and it was gone. And then it was just me sitting there on the beach. Part of it was very bittersweet, you know, it kind of felt a little bit like something was being put in my face. And I remember thinking, where are you, Michio? Where are you now that I've finally found a blue bear? Took one sixtieth of a second to take that picture. It's blurry, it's kind of out of focus. You can tell it's a blue bear from the color, but the entire Story of my friendship with Michio, all of those remarkable times I had spent with Michio, uh, was wrapped up in that one sixtieth of a second, and the fact that it's not much of a composition and that it's blurry and you know poorly shot, uh, doesn't change that. Thank you, Lynn Schuller, for sharing your story. For more on Lynn and Michio's adventures grab a copy of Lynn's book, The Blue Bear. I'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that story was composed and performed by Renzo Gorio and Davy Kim. The piece was produced by Nancy Lopez.